0: Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. Well, we're, we're continuing our series on sexuality, and in week one, we said that something that we need to really think about and consider as we talk about this, as we have this conversation, is we need to, it's really about what you believe about the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created. What do you believe about that? Do you believe that? Or do you believe that, you know, it was just all an accident, it all just happened, and, you know, we're just kind of left to just living our lives the best way we possibly can, just be a good human being, and just when you get to the end, you die, it's done, it's over. And so if that's where you land, if you believe that it was all just an accident, we just kind of, we, we die and we go, then you and I are probably going to land on some very differing conclusions about sexuality. But if you, believe that in, if you believe that first sentence, in the beginning God created, then that informs your view. You believe, for example, that God has designed this body he's designed this world. He's he's got a plan and a purpose for this world. He has a plan and a purpose for you and your life and specifically for your sexuality as well. And so if that's true, if you believe the first line of the Bible, then it's important for us to try to understand what does God have to say about all of this? Now, we kicked this off several weeks ago, so if this is your first Sunday here, like you just showed up and like, what they're in a sex series. I'm out of here. Where's the exit? You know, if that's if, this, if today's your first Sunday, then what I want to encourage you to do is just go back and listen to the first two, the first two installments of this series. Um, it's really important that you actually listen to each message in the context of the whole um, because it really is building. But also, I want to also encourage you to be back next Sunday. Next Sunday, we want to kind of conclude this series with um, A Hope of Restoration. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that, but that's next Sunday. Okay, so today, um, I saw this title around once, and I thought, that's a good title for a sermon series. I'm going to use it. And, um, and then it kind of crept into this series, and the title is, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And then after we advertised it and everything, then I was like, no, I don't want to title it that. I want to title it something different, <laughs> you know, because um, it's a very provocative question. It's actually a, a very reasonable question, in fact. Why does God care who I sleep with? I mean, there is no shortage of awful things happening in this world, right? There's war in eastern Ukraine. There's genocide in Burma there is you know an economy that's going downhill there is you know pandemic level homelessness in america now i mean it's just some really bad things are happening and if god exists why does he care about what i do in the privacy of my own bedroom he does care it's not just a reasonable question it's also a very personal question this touches a very personal part of our being we are all sexual beings So when we talk about who I sleep with, it's not just some theoretical, philosophical question. It's actually a very personal question. You see, God has designed us as sexual beings. And so this question is very relevant to all of us. All of us have a story when it comes to sexuality, right? You don't have to acknowledge me, but it's true. Every one of us in this room, we have some story when it comes to sexuality. And so it's deeply personal, And if it's deeply personal, that means also, for some of you, it can be deeply painful. Because you have a story when it comes to sexuality. That story's not been an easy one. Somewhere along the line, you were hurt. You were damaged in some way. There's some others of you in this room, you're aware that you participated in some of the damaging of someone else. So it's not just a very relevant question, it's also a very personal question. My own story, I grew up in the country of Panama until I was 17. I actually grew up in a very sexualized environment. I mean, a Latino man came up to me after first service and said, yeah, that's my story. We're from two different countries, but he came up and said, that's my story. Grew up in a very sexualized environment. My, my dad, it was not just outside of my home, but it was also in my home. My dad uh, would, you know, on the regular had a stack of Playboy magazines underneath his bed. And we would threaten, don't go in my room or I'll take your life. And then he'd laugh. <laughs> but I thought it was for real. <laughs> um, the culture we lived in, it was, uh, it, was, it, it, was, it was terrible. I mean, women were objectified. Women are viewed as, at least for young men and boys, they were viewed as a mountain to conquer. So that's the environment. That's the culture I grew up in. Then, then I had my own, within that culture, I had my own personal story of hurt because at a very young age, five, six years old, I was introduced to sexual pleasure by a relative that was ongoing for many years. And so by the time I was 13, I was living a very promiscuous lifestyle. Now, I, I didn't think it was promiscuous. You know, I thought it was just the way it is. You know, everything around me was saying, this is how it is. You know, this is the voices that were being said. You know, you're a boy. It's normal feelings that you've got. Just go for it, you know. And so that was how I lived. But then at the age of 18, we moved, we, 17, we moved to the States. And then we started attending this church. And at this church, I met Jesus for the very first time in my life. And um, God began this really cool process of healing a lot of the hurts of my life. I've shared with with you before, but when I was uh, 14 years old, my parents divorced when I was 13. When I was 14, my dad sat me in a bar. I clearly remember. It was a bar on the corner of Callejota, J Street in, in Panama Panama City. He sat me in this bar at the bar. It was mid afternoon, so there was nobody in the bar. It was just him having a drink. And he's crying. They've divorced. Everything's finalized. He's about to be, he, was, he actually had gone AWOL. He's in the military. He had gone AWOL. And so he was being arrested the next day to be shipped back to the States. And, um, and so he sat in that bar and he, through his tears, looked at me and, he, and he's just talking about this divorce and all that. And then he looked at me and he said, And Ricky, it's your fault. And I remember, I remember, <clears throat> I, I remember putting my head down on the bar and just crying and saying to myself, if I, is there a way I can just reverse everything? Is there anything I can say to make that all go away? I knew, I knew in my head that he was half drunk. <laughs> I also knew in my head that he, um, he was in a lot of pain and anger over all of this stuff and situation happening with my mom. And so when I met Jesus, there was a need for some ser- serious healing in my heart. And so I remember um, going to this church and beginning to experience that healing. I remember it was just, it's incred- some of you know, many of you know what I'm talking about, that incredible lift that happens when Jesus comes into your heart and he starts setting aright the things that were all messed up. And so I began to experience healing and healing. In terms of my relationship with my dad, we had not spoken in years and, and, uh, and God just began to lift that and bring healing and, and restoration in my life. The sense of abandonment that I, that I experienced because of my dad, I began to experience healing around that as well. I had, a, I had a, a drug addiction at this point. I wouldn't say that I had it because I was smart or because I wanted to do that, but I had it because I was really trying to mask a lot of pain that I had in my life. And I just remember just like instantly, the day I gave my life to Jesus, instantly it was gone. It was just gone. It was just a miracle. God just set me free. I became part of a community there and I began to to just experience real healing in my life. It was there that also I began to come to terms with my sexual history. Because those things didn't seem like it. it, Those were like private stuff, right? You know, God was taking care of all this big stuff in my life. But this private stuff, well, that's just there, you know. (laughs) Whatever. don't have to think about it too much. It was always private anyways. But God just began to bring some healing and some restoration there as well. And as I got to know Jesus more and more, I began to realize that he actually has some very poignant things to say about our sexuality. Like he actually wants to speak to you and me about how we behave sexually. He wants to. That's interesting that that's the case because I think we've kind of grown up with this idea that all of the repressive views of sexuality come from like the Old Testament. Like in the Old Testament, you know, God's going to smite you dead because you did this or you did that. But then in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and Jesus is just love. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus cares. And all of that is absolutely true. But we, we think, we kind of add to that, like, and so he gives us a pass. Like, he doesn't really have to say anything about our sexuality. And yet what we discover is that Jesus actually has some very poignant things to say about our sexuality. And so this is really the launch pad. Why, why does God care who I sleep with? In um, Matthew uh, chapter 5, that's where we, started, where we started this passage last week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. It's very foundational things that Jesus is saying here. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to discover today is that there's nobody more challenging than Jesus when it comes to our sexuality. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't give you a pass. He doesn't give any of us a pass. There's nobody more challenging than Jesus by the same token, there's no, nobody more dignifying than Jesus when it comes to our sexuality. And ultimately, there's nobody more satisfying than Jesus when it comes to our sexuality. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, it starts off like this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is talking primarily to, some, to a bunch of Jewish men. There's some, probably some women scattered in the crowd, but primarily they're Jewish men. The women are actually doing the work. The men are just lollygagging around, listening to Jesus preach, you know. And so he's speaking to these men, and he says, you shall not commit adultery. And what he's doing, he's taking taking some of the Ten Commandments, at at least in this portion. He's taking some of the Ten Commandments, and he is explaining how this is how this has been taught to you. You're familiar with the Ten Commandments. This is how you have been taught the Ten Commandments. But then he's offering some contrast to how you have been taught about the 10 commandments. And the contrast is really, really important for us to understand. It's why he makes such a big point to talk about it, right? So you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. This is true. And so the audience is listening. Yep, we know what we're tracking with you, Jesus. We know this is true. We know that that's the seventh commandment. We know that we're not supposed to commit adultery. We totally get that. For them, they understood God's design for human sexuality. That sex was actually in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And that any other type of sexual behavior, any other type of sexual activity was considered sexual immorality. So sex before marriage was considered sexual immorality. Same-sex relationships were forbidden. Adultery is forbidden in the Bible. And by extension, things like hookups, living together and not married, casual sexual encounters, and I can go on, the list goes on and on, it was forbidden. And they understood this. Now, this is not always easy for us to hear when we hear these things, because we live in a world that basically said a lot of things are okay. It's not easy for us to hear this, but this is essentially what Jesus is saying. Okay? The Bible teaches this. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this audience is listening, and they're like, we got it we're tracking with you we know what you're saying in fact these, these these men are saying we're 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 obeying the law there like we may not be 100 percent on all of the commandments but on this one we're golden we know exactly what's going on we are we're, we're on target we're doing the right thing here but then Jesus goes on. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But then he adds this contrast. He says, but I say unto you. Now, what's interesting, yeah, let's go to, yeah, but I tell you that. And then he's, let's just imagine we stop right there. I wonder if for a split second, the people that are listening are like, whoa, what's Jesus going to Is he going to change the rules? Like, don't commit adultery, but is he going to? Is he gonna change the rules now? Is he gonna say, hey, you know what? You've heard, don't do all that. That's kind of pretty old testament archaic. Just be yourself. Go with what feels right. And I I know when I say that it might sound like I'm being condescending, I don't mean it condescending way. We live in a culture that is really all about how we feel. And so maybe Jesus would say, go with what feels right. That's not what he does, though. It's what he says in verse 28. I tell you, like you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so if the rule was here, Jesus basically adds to it and makes it even more challenging. Essentially what Jesus is saying is this commandment was never merely to, to, you know, control your external behavior. This was really about the heart. This is what this seventh commandment is all about. It's not about whether you, what you do in your bedroom, what you do physically with somebody. It's what's going on inside your heart. What's going on inside of your thinking in your mind. Like if you lo- look at someone lustfully, you've already broken God's law is what he's saying. And you're going against how human sexuality is meant to work. Because when you look at someone lustfully, you're turning that person into a commodity. You're turning that person into something you can consume. Something that's meant to satisfy your desires. And this matters because you're not just breaking some arbitrary commandment from hundreds of years ago. You're actually going against how God has designed us to be. That's essentially what Jesus is telling us here. Now, culturally, we tend to think that sex is primarily about self-fulfillment, you know, kind of self-expression. The Bible shows that actually sex is more than that. Sex is it's not about self-fulfillment or self-expression. It's actually about self-giving. The word ikad, where they come together, it, it describes this mystical union that happens between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. And that union is about giving yourself over to that person as mutual And so you're mutually surrendering, mutually giving yourself over to that person. Tim Keller recently passed away. He says this, sex is a way of saying I'm giving myself to someone fully, exclusively, and permanently. Fully, exclusively, and permanently. Fully because it it involves my entire being. Like I don't come to the altar of marriage and say, I give you my life, just not my money. (laughs) I give you my life, but, you know, just don't tell me what to do on Sports Sunday. It's about fully giving yourself over to that person. Exclusively because it's, as you're giving yourself over fully to that person, you're also not giving yourself in any kind of way to another person. It's exclusive. And then permanently, because this is never meant to be undone. And when it is it's incredibly painful, incredibly painful. So Jesus says, merely looking at someone lustfully breaks God's design. And so Jesus is challenging all of us. He's saying this is really an issue, an issue of the heart for every single one of us. Like he's, like I think most of us can say, you know what, I've, I've never committed physical adultery, but Jesus is saying it's not just about physical adultery. Have you ever thought about somebody that you, in a way you shouldn't have thought about them? Have you ever desired somebody in a way you shouldn't have desired them? And then this is not just simply about sexual contact ne- necessarily. This can also be about adulterating ourselves in other areas of life, giving ourselves over to a job. Like, I'm married here, but I'm really married over there. It's an issue of the heart. It's a heart problem that every single one of us have. And so, in this short passage, Jesus basically gives us an idea of the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the Ten Commandments were never given so that you could, like, it's this standard that gets set so that you could just prove yourself, live up to this standard. Because the reality is, if in the true interpretation of the Ten Commandments, none of us, none of us can live up to the Ten Commandments. In fact, most of us can't even live up to the Ten Commandments in, as they're written. And then in the spirit of the Ten Commandments, definitely none of us can live up to the Ten Commandments. So it really wasn't about, it really was not about, you know, this kind of relationship you're going to have with God about that. It was all about performance. It was really about, you can't do this, and you must, you must, if you're gonna be my people, if you're gonna be my, my children, you must, you must, you must rely on the grace and mercy of, of this loving God. You have no other option when it comes, to, especially when it comes to sexuality. It's kind of like in forensics. You know, in forensics, they use this black light technology. Like, uh, you know, you go to a crime scene, and it's like all clean. It looks, you know, from a, you know, like... Just looking at it, it looks all clean and good. But if you turn the lights down, you turn on a black light, it, sh- it kind of reveals, you know, blood and things that were there. Every time I watch these shows, I don't know if this is actually factual. I don't know if actually black lights really do this stuff. I just saw it in a lot of crime shows. But um, So I may be wrong. <laughs> but nonetheless, the, these black lights, you know, when I see them, I'm like, man, I should get one of those for all the hotel rooms that I, that I go to. And I'm like... Yeah, somebody said, it's exactly. This. They said, no, 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 that's a bad idea. Don't do that. <laughs> You've been doing it for a long time now, just forget it, you know. Anyways, the Ten Commandments is like that. It's like this black light that shines on us, like we look the part, we look like everything's great, When you turn the lights out, you shine the black light, and all of a sudden it reveals the real dirt on the inside of us. And it reveals to us that every single one of us cannot live up to the law Every single one of us need Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, every single one of us, need to fall on our face and say, "I'm, I'm here for your mercy and your grace." Every single one of us. So let me be really clear of the message of Jesus here. <clears throat> the message isn't, "Hey, you really need to work hard at maintaining your sexual purity, and if by chance you mess that up, well, you're done for." That's not the message. If that's the message of Christianity, then we are all hopeless. Amen? No. The message of Jesus is you were never pure. Only I can make you pure. So we need God's help. We need his mercy. There's not a person in this room that doesn't need his grace and his mercy. And if you're here and you say, no, I'm good. (laughs) You know, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've, I've got this figured out. You need it more than anybody else. <laughs> Every one of us needs his grace and his mercy. It also means that there's no room for me to judge someone else's sexual sin because Jesus has leveled the playing field. We're all in this together. We're all in deep search, deep search for wholeness, fulfillment, and connection. That only Jesus Christ can give, and so <clears throat> if you're tempted to judge someone else, I get it. But listen, if Jesus isn't good, in, if Jesus isn't good news for that person, for one kind of sexual sin, then he's not good news for any of us. He is good news. So number one, Jesus is challenging. Number two, Jesus is also very dignifying in this area of our lives. Right? He shows us that. If you look at someone lustfully, you're, you know, you've broken God's law. What does that say about the person on the other side, though? Like, think about this. He's speaking to the person that's looking lustfully, but who is that person looking at? In this case, in the Scripture's case, it's looking at a woman. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, there is dignity, there is value to that person that you're looking at. And yes, maybe you haven't physically been in contact with with that person, but what you've done in your mind has has brought their value down. They're losing their dignity because of what you're doing in your mind. And he cares about that. He cares about what we think. He cares of how we think about them. So, here's what we need to understand this morning. You're broken in this part of your life. This is the challenging part. Every single one of us in this room are broken. Every single one of us in this room, we need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ when it comes to our sexual story. The dignifying part of that, about this though, is that even in our brokenness, you are valued. You're valued. Jesus cares how people think about you. And I know I to need to take a little bit to sink in, but I, you know especially you women in this room, Jesus cares about how other people think about you. It's easy to d- detach ourselves from that. It's just a thought. But Jesus cares and that's the dignity that he brings to sexuality. <clears throat> Jesus cares about how other people think. There may be people who see you as, and your body as merely a commodity, as some consumable that can be used. And maybe you're aware of that. Maybe you're not aware of that. Maybe somebody's been thinking about you and you're not at all aware. You just need to understand that Jesus sees that, knows that, and because you're valuable to him, he has something to say about it. One of the things that we tell ourselves in our culture is that It's just physical, right? It's just biology. I mean, why is the church so hung up on this? Why are they talking about this so much? Why do they even care so much? I mean, it's just physical. It's no big deal. But the truth is is that the Me Too movement has proven that wrong. (laughs) I mean, we're becoming far more conscious of the damage done by sexual abuse. We've come to realize that the damage is not just simply physical, but also very psychological. And so you might say, it's just physical. Yeah, but no, that's not true. Sex is not just physical. It's actually also spiritual. It's also, it's also very emotional. And it matters. So Jesus dignifies this part of your lives. It matters what we do with our sexuality. It matters what we do with someone else's sexuality. It matters how we think about them. And it matters how people think about you. So we see that Jesus is challenging. We see that Jesus is also um, very dignifying in our sexuality, but He's uniquely satisfying in our sexuality as well. In one sense, I think that our culture has taught us that you know, um, sex is just way down here. It's no big deal. It's just animal instincts. It's just you know whatever. There's no attachments necessarily. We consider that to be sort of how sexuality is viewed. So we make no. It's it's just nothing. It's not a big deal at all. It's just physical. And we've understood that that's not, that's not true. It's incredibly damaging. We've understood that. But on the other hand, I think we've also sent a different message, especially in the church, is that sex is everything. Like the only way you can truly, truly be fulfilled and satisfied is if you're fulfilled sexually. And so if one mistake is that we've made it nothing, the other mistake is that we've made it everything. I get it. <clears throat> There's something in us that we feel this. I mean, it's just there. We feel this, that perhaps sexual fulfillment will somehow make me whole and complete. You feel incomplete. You feel cut off. You feel that sex will somehow mend that. But I think what's happening here is that because it's God's design, because God has created us this way, there's like this deposit inside of us that's pointing to a deeper longing. It's really a connection that we're searching for. We feel very disconnected. And sometimes we want to fill that connection. We want to fill that gap of disconnection with sexuality. And we go after it, we go after it, we go after it. And we, we think for temporarily, we're, we feel connected. Temporarily we feel full. Temporarily we feel satisfied. But then it just wanes. It wears off and it's just not Or just that ultimate desire for connection is not happening for us. I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is that true fulfillment, true fulfillment is beyond sex. True fulfillment comes in Jesus only. Just to lower the seriousness in this room a little bit because we're kind of serious right now. You're you're looking at me like, no, you're serious, Rich. (laughs) Uh, But uh, um, how many of you have seen the movie Zoolander. So there's shy people raising their hand. I don't know. if I want to claim that I watched the movie Zoolander. Uh, you know, it's with Ben Stiller. He's Derek. He's, the character he plays is Derek Zoolander, and um, and it's really a it's it's a, it's it's a silly movie. And the whole idea, the whole premise of the movie, is the better looking you are, the dumber you are. Basically, that's the premise of the whole movie, which I take personal offense to that, by the way. So. Um, no. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But the idea, and was, anyways, that Derek Zoolander, who is the main character, he is very—he's a male model, and he's a very good-looking guy, which means that he's really, really dumb. And so there's a scene in the movie where where he, where Mugatu, the some guy, Mugatu who's played by Will Ferrell, Mugatu has decided to build a school in in honor of Derek Zoolander, and the name of the school is Derek Zoolander's School for Children That Do Not Read Good. <laughs> That's the name of the school. It's just it's, it's terrible. It's just ridiculous. It's over the top crazy, right? And so Mugazzo uh, so reveals the school, you know, and Derek Zulander walks up to the school and he looks at it and, you know, it's a model. He's got an architect build a, a, you know, a model version, like a one-tenth version model or even smaller than that, one-twentieth. And so he looks at the school, you know, and, and Zoolander walks up and he walks up to the school. And he looks at it and he's like, what is this? And he picks up the school and he tosses it or the model, he tosses it, is this a school for ants? <laughs> and then there's this moment in the movie, <laughs> sorry, it's just hilarious. I had, to watch, I had to re-watch the clip this morning just to remind myself of how ridiculous it is. There's a moment in the movie where, where he, he's, it's on the floor, it's all torn to pieces, you know, and he's like, he's like, is this a school for ants? And then he looks and he says, it needs to be at least, at least, at least, Three times the size. (laughs) Anyways, the stupidity of the scene is that he's mistaken the model for the real thing. And when you and I think that sexuality is gonna give us ultimate fulfillment, we're doing exactly that. We're mistaking the model for the real thing. We're losing sight that we will not ever find it in that. One of the titles that Jesus has in the Gospels is bridegroom. We know this about God. God has always been this divine husband who can't help but lavish you know, covenant promises on his people. He's like this... Husband that's pursuing his people. He's not just a God up in heaven they're supposed to be worshiped. He's actually this divine husband that wants to have this intimate relationship with his people. And Jesus has that same title. Like Jesus is this divine husband that, that you've been waiting for, that you've been longing for. One that's going to fulfill your deepest longings and meet your greatest needs. And when we think that somehow or another sexuality does that, it's very temporary. Now, how does Jesus do this? He does this by himself, like this bridegroom. By himself, he, he becomes disconnected from the Father. He becomes unwhole and dies on a cross so that you and I could be connected to the Father. So that you and I could be made whole again. So that you and I could have true fulfillment like we've been searching everywhere for it. We're not finding it, but it's found in Christ. This is what he does. He is uniquely satisfying. First week, I talk a little bit about Beckett Cook, who was this highly successful production designer in Hollywood, and um, he lived as a fully engaged gay man. He says about about his lifestyle, he said, his identity as a gay man was immutable, meaning it was never going to change. It was impossible. It was just who he was. But then in 2009, he has this experience with Christ. He goes to a church in Hollywood, gives his life to Jesus, and this is how he explains his, his journey. He says, I walked into that church, a gay atheist, and I walked out two hours later as a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. I love how he uses that language. We use this language, love, right here, um, very capriciously sometimes. Like, uh, like, I love someone, therefore I want to have sexual relations with them, right? And um, he basically transfers it to love with Jesus, like there is something very profound about this. He said, I was stunned by the reversal. Since then, I no longer identify as gay. gay. That is no longer my identity, he says. As crazy as that sounds, I don't care because I've met Jesus. Like, Jesus is now what's fulfilling me. Surrendering my sexuality hasn't been easy. I still struggle with vestiges of same-sex attraction. But denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Jesus is an honor. Any struggles I experience pale in comparison to the joy of a personal relationship with the one who created me and gives my life meaning. And then he makes this statement that is very, 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 very very relevant to us today. My identity is no longer in my sexuality. It is in Jesus. In Jesus, I am complete. The most fully human and complete person who ever walked this earth was Jesus. He was never married. He never had any romantic relationships with a, a woman. He never had sex. And yet he was fully satisfied. And the moment we say that somehow any of those things will make us whole. Like marriage, if I could just get married, I'll be complete, I'll be whole, I'll be satisfied. If I could just have sex, I'll be full, full, fulfilled and satisfied. If I I could have sex the way I wanna have sex, I'll be full and satisfied. The moment we do that and we say that's what truly satisfies us, that's the moment we say that Jesus himself was not truly satisfied that Jesus himself was not fully human. Listen, Jesus is challenging, and I get that. I get it. And you might be sitting here this morning. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand as we conclude our service. You might be sitting here this morning, and you might be saying to yourself, man, I don't know, Rich, I'm not landing where you're landing. I get that. Believe me, I've lived in, I've lived here in this town for almost 20 years and I've had multiple, multiple, dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations around sexuality with individuals. I've got a former church attender who's actually written a book to controvert what we believe as Christians about sexuality. And I've had long conversations about these things. And I get it. What Jesus, the standard that Jesus places on us, is—it's challenging. It is challenging, and I'm not going to tell you it's going to be easy. But if you land on where with that, with the truth of that first line in Scripture, "In the beginning, God created," if that's where you land, and you say that is true, then what follows is also true, and it's challenging. And it's challenged for every single one of us. So I just want to challenge you. What will you do with that? Jesus is incredibly dignifying. He cares about you. You are valuable to him. If you're in this room right now and you have suffered sexual abuse in your life, and you feel lost because of it, You feel demeaned because of it. You feel like there's no future for you. In some ways, you feel that way. Jesus cares about you. You are valuable to him. And you're not valuable valuable to him because you're completely whole. You're valuable to him because you are his creation. And he loves you deeply. And he wants to make you whole. And ultimately, Jesus is incredibly incredibly satisfying that's been my story it was a long it was a long journey it wasn't it didn't happen overnight i didn't like get saved in 1981 and then boom i'm okay i'm great everything's good Nope. it took some time but over the course of those years what happened is that he began to take out all the things I was putting my hope in my identity in my my the fears i had that it would make me latch on to things he's taken all those things out and he was replacing it with jesus and step by step jesus was becoming everything so sex is not everything jesus is everything amen and so we have we have prayer teams here left and right i want to encourage you if you're here this morning i know this is tough you don't may not want to, a crowd like this want to go to meet some people for prayer, but I would encourage you to do that. Take that step. If today you've decided, I don't want to live in this reality anymore. I want a new reality that's found in Jesus Christ. then will you step out? and you meet one of our prayer team members? I want to pray for us. Pray for our team, our, 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 our people in Cedar Rapids and in Walton as well. God wants to do something in our hearts around this idea of sexuality. Amen. Father, we just want to thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, and your loving kindness. Father, we, I say that on a regular basis. Lord, I don't take those words for, for granted. You are good. You are loving. And you are gracious. And Lord, there are people in this room that need to know that and understand that you are good, you are loving, you are gracious. That you're a forgiving God and that you've made a way. It's a difficult way, it's a narrow path in some ways, but you've made a way for us to be truly satisfied. And so, Father, this morning as we pray, we're asking you, God, to step in, to start changing our hearts, to start mending what's been broken, to help us to find our identity in you, in you alone, Jesus. We pray, Father, that those in Wilton and those in Cedar Rapids as well that are standing and right now praying with me, God, that you would do the same thing for them. Jesus is better. In Jesus' name.